Thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray as we begin. Lord, it is good to be together in your house, worshiping you as one. Um, thank you, Lord, that we could have the, the kids in as well today, worshiping with us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would teach them how to worship you in truth and in, in spirit. Because we all need that. We all need that, especially in today's atmosphere. So we give you thanks and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. It's great to be together again. Uh, it's the beginning of August. And so we're kind of like right in the middle of summer. We are facing the dog days of summer. I don't know if you know what that term means, but uh, look for some hot days ahead, including today. We continue our reading through the Gospel of John, the first chapter, with a more comprehensive look at John the Baptist, or perhaps more correctly, John the Baptizer. I shared with the baptism class last week that uh, I took a, a cl- classics class in college, and um, it was a class that looked at the origins of our English words from the Greek and Latin origins. And when we came to the word baptize or baptizo in Greek, the professor explained that the word literally translated meant to immerse or to dunk, Okay. So, which is part of the reason why we practice the method of immersion baptism here at Harvest. But he jokingly said that John the Baptist could be called John the Dunker. (laughs) And then he went on to say that Dunkin' Donuts could be called Baptist Donuts. (laughs) So I guess the tradition of coffee and donuts uh, before church or men's group or whatever has merit. As long as they are immersed and not sprinkled with coffee. (laughs) To review, last week we said that John's main mission was what? What was John's main mission? Anybody? (laughs) It was to point to Christ, right? John's mission was to point to reflect the glory of Christ. And if that was John's main mission, then that's our main mission, simply to reflect Christ's glory. We are to point people to Christ and to reflect his glory. And John said he was full of grace and truth. Christ, full of grace and truth. Not grace or truth, not all grace and no truth, and not all truth and consequences, but grace and truth together. Grace and truth go hand in hand. Justice and mercy go hand in glove. This is God's character. This is God's glory. Uh, The Saturday men's Bible study is reading through Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet. It's an excellent treatment of the book of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet who ran away from God because he didn't like the assignment that God had given him to preach repentance or face God's wrath. And he was to preach this to the evil Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. Jonah was all about God's wrath, but he was afraid that the Ninevites, once he preached, would repent and thus be saved from God's wrath. Jonah was all justice and no mercy. By the way, an excellent question came up in last week's uh, baptism class. What's the difference between grace and mercy? What is the difference between grace and mercy? Well, the short answer is mercy is us not receiving 
what we deserve. Mercy is us not receiving God's judgment. That's what we deserve. We all deserve that. Grace is us receiving what we don't deserve, God's Christ's righteousness. So mercy is us not receiving, God withholding his judgment, and grace is us receiving what we don't deserve, Christ's sacrifice. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. So then John the baptizer was, repe- was preaching repentance from sin, but Jesus had just come on the scene, and John was only beginning to understand his connection with Jesus. The apostle John then says in verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to see him. You see, when we give testimony to the light, you may start to gain some attention, not only from the common folks, not only from those who really want to hear the message because they're hungry and thirsty for something that is true, that is right, but also from leaders and skeptics who want to test the waters. Now, the apostle uses the term the Jews, not in a national ethnic sense, as in the Jewish people, but in this context, it is meant to point to the religious establishment in Jerusalem, the higher-ups, the head office, if you will. These priests and Levites are sent as an official delegation representing the powers that be in the high places of the land. They come to question this dunker. And so we see that opposition comes in the form of questions. Opposition may come in the form of questions. These representatives ask the most basic of questions. Who are you? Who is this guy? Who are you? Now, John's response exposes the fact that this is a loaded question. Maybe it was their body language, or maybe it was the tone of their voice or the inflection, or maybe it was the fact that they came as a committee, not to introduce themselves. This was no simple meet and greet. Uh, They were not there to have coffee and donuts. John knew this, so he gets right down to business. John doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't start to backpedal or make excuses for himself. Neither does he try to go into a lengthy discourse about his heritage and the fact that his dad was a priest and that at one time and that he had taken the Nazarite vow and he'd been living in the wilderness all these years eating locusts and honey. No, he gets right down to brass tacks because when opposition comes, when opposition does come and when it does, We stick to the mission. We stick to mission. Point people to Jesus. Just keep doing it. I am not the Christ, John confessed. He did not deny. He was not claiming to to be the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. John makes it very clear. He is not claiming to be someone he is not, and therefore be accused with false allegations. So John says in front of all these witnesses, I am not the Christ. So the following questions come. Are you Elijah? No. The prophet? 
No. Who, who are you then? They had to know. They had to report back something to the higher-ups. Now, why does this delegation ask about Elijah and the prophet, you may ask? Well, Jews believe that Elijah was to appear heralding the coming of the, the Messiah. To this day, Orthodox Jews invite Elijah into their Passover celebrations, often pouring a cup of wine called the Elijah's cup, or opening the door at the end of the Seder uh, to let Elijah in. Elijah then is the forerunner for the Messiah, a sign that the Messiah would soon come, and the Jews are still waiting for him. In the same way that Jewish people were prophesied another prophet to come in preparation for the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, God told the priests and the Levites this in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And then in verse 18 and 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So these priests and Levites would have been very interested if John had claimed to be either Elijah come again or the prophet raised up by God. Interestingly, John denies both of these, although later Jesus would say that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. John does quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The way that John points to Jesus is to prepare the way for him. John is the forerunner, preparing the way for the Lord, clearing the path before him, making straight the way of the Lord, calling people to repent and get ready because the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand, and you better be ready because the world will change. The old will be abolished, and the new will come. So why were these Pharisees and the religious leaders opposing John and then Jesus? Because they were a threat to the existing power structure. It usually comes down to power and control. Who has it and who wants it? There were other false messiahs who came in the past, people claiming to be the one. So in some ways, these men were simply doing their job making sure no false teachers or scam artists or crazy radical zealots were looming on the horizon. But something must have been different about John and then Jesus. What was different was they came preaching with a different kind of authority, the kind of authority that was true, whether or not credentials came with it. If this was true about John and Jesus, then indeed their world would be be soon turned upside down. And so they needed to be proactive about it and not sit around and wait for it to happen. When they didn't get the answers they they liked, their questions intensified. Because oftentimes opposition will intensify. The intensity heightens when the priests and Levites ask the question, why? 
Not just who now, but why. Why do you baptize? They are in essence asking John, by what authority do you perform these baptisms? Who gave you this authority? Where are your permits? You know, you live here in Irvine. You got to have permits for everything. Where are your credentials? By what right do you call people to repentance if you're not the Christ or you're not Elijah or you're not the prophet? Has anyone ever asked you for your credentials? If you've ever traveled abroad, you know what it's like when you enter a new country and you hand the man or the woman your passport and they look at your passport, they look at you, They look at your passport, and they look at you, your passport, you, and they ask you a question, what are you here for? Work or business? They are feeling you out, trying to make you uncomfortable in case you aren't there for legitimate reasons. Now, John's answer here is great, isn't it? He says, I baptize in water which is temporary. This is a temporary cleansing. But he says, one comes after me, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. John is so humble. Usually a teacher would make a disciple or servant do menial tasks, like wash feet or untie sandals. I remember there was a TV show way back when called Kung Fu. It was about an orphan boy who wanted to join the Shaolin Temple in China. The Buddhist monks there would make the boy sweep the floor every day, even in the rain. The lesser always serves the greater. But what John is saying here is that Jesus was so far beyond any human being that he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals, perhaps the most menial of menial tasks. Now, let's say a word about John's baptism. Why did John baptize? Why did he baptize? Why would he need to call the Jewish people to to repentance? The baptism of John was by water. It was a ceremonial cleansing, and it was usually reserved for Gentiles who wanted to come to faith into the Jewish faith. Jews who were born into the faith and went through the Jewish traditions and laws didn't need full immersions as John the Baptist did. They only needed to be cleansed ceremonially by the washing of hands or feet, not a full immersion. A Gentile who wanted to become a Jew would have to go through this ceremonial cleansing, which included the entire body immersed in water to signify this cleansing, this joining a new uh, thing. When a Jew subjected themselves to John's immersive baptism, it meant that they were identifying with a new cleansing, something that went deeper than mere external washing. This would have been unheard of for the priests and Levites. This would have posed the greatest threat to the existing power structure and the need for control. You want to see what fear of losing control looks like? Just watch any current political debate or commentary. 
Politics in any time and era is about who has control and who wants it. You ask yourself, especially those of you who are parents dealing with your children, when do you feel most angry and threatened with your kids? It's usually when you feel like you're losing control. Well, let me clue you into something right now. There are very few things in life that you truly have control over. The only thing that you can truly control is your response to what's happening to you. So I would say don't take the path of the priests and Levites, the path that they took here. Don't increase the intensity of the opposition. Instead, trust in the one who has all things under control, even when it looks like things aren't under control. Now, this was the, only the opening salvo for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Things would get, get much harder for both John and Jesus in the future. But that didn't matter. John was unwavering in his desire to fulfill his mission. When the heat gets turned up, when the pressure in the pressure cooker starts to rise, when you feel the stink eye start to glare at you and the opposition starts to intensify, respond with all sincerity and honesty, still reflecting the light. Still reflecting the light. That's right, don't fight fire with fire, don't ratchet up the hostility, don't start lobbing missiles when they're lobbing grenades. Respond in all sincerity and honesty, still reflecting the light. Stay on mission. John doesn't back off, but he doesn't attack either. The apostle records in verse 19 that the next day, the baptizer, the dunker, saw Jesus walking toward them and calls out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pointing to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Perhaps the most profound statement John the Baptist would ever utter. He is now not only reflecting the glory of Christ, But in one sentence, he is stating Christ's mission on earth. He is stating the gospel. If you ever wonder how to share Jesus with a friend, take a lesson from John the Baptist. Simply say, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for John's listeners, they may already be clued into what John is meaning here. Jews know that at Passover, God commanded their ancestors to sacrifice a perfect lamb, one year old, no bones would be allowed to be broken, the children of Israel would take the blood of the lamb and brush it over the door of their post, uh, of the doorpost, so that the angel of death would pass over the houses that had blood, the blood of the lamb. The, blood, the Passover lamb was merely a foretaste of what God would do for the world in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, whose bones were not broken, whose blood would cover a multitude of sins. In fact, as John said, he would take away the sins of the world. Jesus is not merely a good teacher or a moralist. 
He wasn't a miracle worker or just a good guy. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John again bears witness to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. In verse 31, John the Baptist recounts how when John was baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. John had been told by God that a dove would descend upon the man who is God's anointed, the chosen one, the Messiah. And if you read any of the other gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism, you know that John also heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Today, you may not be facing any opposition. And you might want to ask yourself, why is that? You know, life is good. Everything's clear. Nobody's giving you any flack. Why is that? Are you doing anything to draw attention to, not to yourself, but to Jesus? Are you reflecting the glory of God? And if you're not, maybe there's no opposition. Maybe the enemy sees no threat in you. But are you facing opposition today? Is your faith flagging? Are you listening to critics of Christianity saying it isn't true? Are you doubting that the Bible is the word of God? Are you antagonized by the opposition to your faith, believing the lies of the enemy? If you are, go back to what you know. Go back to your first love. Respond in all sincerity and honesty. Reflect the glory of the only begotten of God. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and believe. If you dare to live as a disciple of Christ, if you dare to reflect the glory of God, if you dare to live full of grace and truth, opposition will come. And opposition may intensify if you persist. And in the end days, with opposition will come persecution. Just ask the brothers and sisters in China or Indonesia or any Muslim-dominated country. And just wait. The church here in the U.S. is increasingly experiencing a hostile environment. It's becoming more and more difficult to speak the truth, even if it is soaked in grace. But our response, again, should reflect the character of the one who is our source of light and life. The apostle Peter wrote this of Christ. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. To put it another way, I've heard it said of our witness for Christ. Be winsome so that you may win some. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this message comes to us at a very 
timely point in our history um, with a very divisive election looming on the horizon with, oh my goodness, more news of shootings. We don't know what's happening and we don't know what's going to happen. But we can trust you. We can trust you with life. We can trust you because you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The answer is not government, either Republican or Democratic. The answer is not more resources. The answer is not even for us to buckle down and be better people. The answer is a change of heart. Our hearts need to be changed, and the only one who can do that is you, Jesus. You have the power, and you have the will. And so we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that things will get worse. You already told us that. You already told us to expect it. So it should not surprise us. But we know that you are there, and you are with us. You are for us. You are our lion, and you are the lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.